Hello, listeners. This is Liel. It's summer, sleeves are short, and tempers run high. So we may say some words you may not want your children or your parents to hear. This is your obscenity warning. Stephanie, we're going to get you a mezuzah. We're going to. I don't want We're going to nail it up when you're not there, and then you're going to. Then it's going to put fine. you. Then it's going to be like, do you take it down? Leah, let's do we mezuzah her. If you mezuzah my apartment, I would I would report you. If you mezuzah my apartment. <laughs> to the Jewish 311. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, at least on iTunes, which you know we still control. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Grand Marshal. Grand Leibowitz. Marshal. Leah. One L. I never, I mean, it's spelled with a V, but you sort of pronounce it with an intermediate VW. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Butnick, yeah. Yeah. And you don't need to way, emphasize the butt. I, I can't aspirate my tea on no. Butnick. The emphasis on the nick. Uh, nick. In Israel, it's Leibovich. Leibovich. But I kind of like Leibovitz. Leibovitz. It sounds very intellectual. Is it Leibovitz? Leibovitz. I, I just say Leibovitz. Uh, this week, our first ever book club. We've we've been reading um, The Ruined House by Ruby Namdar, and he will be with us to talk about his Book. I just want to say that you monsters chose this book. It's wonderful, <laughs> but it is long AF. It now, is f- over 500 pages. Correct. Did you actually start reading it yesterday, Stephanie? No, no, no. I've been reading it for a long time. Oh, that was just Liel's joke Liel on Slack. I was joking, but I just, I, it felt almost like high school or like college. And like the professor's in the room with us. <laughs> Stephanie was cramming. Wait, can I just say? <laughs> it just took a, it took like a several weekends of my life it's to not, read. It's not a short book, but I think it's totally worth it. But I, it does bring back memories Um before I started high school, the, my high school had summer reading, as many as many high schools do, uh, in in these American parts. They probably don't have that in Israel because you're on the beach or something. You're either in the army or on the beach. Correct. I don't know. You're at scouting. But um, we had three books that we had to read before freshman year. Our summer years. reading was like the M16 operating manual. Right. Uh, our summer reading the summer before I started freshman year at the Loomis Chafee School in Windsor, Connecticut, was three books, one of which was David Copperfield, which is 880 pages long. It's also the subject of like seven different BBC adaptations you could rent I at your local well, blockbuster. I remember that this. was not 13, 14 year old Mark. Was I was not going to rent but the book. But the summer reading, I forget what we had to watch, read like the Founding Brothers, the Founding Fathers, like the book. And then they had just Oh, by done, Joseph Ellis or something? So, or? Yeah, like with a, just a million. And so I remember there was a line to get the video from the library because I, I remember I like David had it and then I was going to get it. <laughs> so wait, did any of you read the book or like all of oh. Great Neck North cheated? Basically? Um, no, no, it was it was not actually like if you whatever. It's not <laughs> cheating. It's adapting. It's, it's, adapt. just, it's just like it man. takes most communities like till junior year of high school before you figure out you could do that. They're all incoming freshmen. I think, you no, know, I think it was called The Found. It was like this really long book. It was really interesting. But at a certain point, you're like, I'm not going to finish this by the end. And I'm invested enough that I want to watch the movie. Uh, also, we will talk with Times Magazine writer and noted Jewess, Taffy Brodesser-Ackner, who wrote a, a wonderful essay about Philip Roth. So we're going to have like a literary, we're going to have a literary day today here. So uh, what is up, Jews? Liel, you were honorary marshal of the Israel Day Parade? I was honorary grand marshal of the Israel Day Parade. Were there it's not... actually grande. Don't, don't, it was a vent, <laughs> I was originally a venti marshal, but I was sort of... Uh, so When Howard Schultz becomes president, those will be budgetary terms. I woke up to a tweet from listener Ari Burak. We saw at Liel wearing that honorary grand marshal sash and yelled out his name. He looked over at us, confused. I yelled out, unorthodox. He just looked at us, looked away, and kept walking. Look, don't meet your idols. They'll always disappoint They'll you. They'll always disappoint you. What? Borak, there are like 40,000 people <laughs> screaming there. I'm walking with a sash up Fifth Avenue, which is such a surreal experience in the shadow of Trump Tower. There are two adorable children carrying a very large sign 
with my name on it. And this really, you know, this feels otherworldly. And because we Jews control the weather, it's also raining outside. Also, were you stoned? I was stone called sober. Is really? What I was. You finally, I was, it was like 10 a.m. I was high on life. Before us is the official <laughs> government of Israel float with uh, two very talented musicians playing authentic Israeli songs. Like all we are saying is give peace a chance. Let me tell you, this was, it was an amazing party. There's so many things that struck me, including the fact that last time I marched with so many Jews with flags, we all had guns and it was Lebanon. But the thing that really kind of moved me the most, and I've been to this parade, like, I think, like, almost every year for the last 10 years or so, uh-huh. uh, there was a real sense today, like, no one seemed like they're there out of any sense of duty, like, we're here because it's important to defend Israel. Everyone was just having fun. It was 40,000 happy Jews. When is the last time you saw 40,000 happy Jews? <laughs> yeah, and Stephanie's sitting like... Wait, wait, they weren't... As, as our publisher, Morty, told me the other day when, I, when I, we were all having dinner after, your, after your, your turn in the parade, he said, and there were some Gentile marching bands. <laughs> which was like, which gave I'm me pretty pause. sure there was like the Rutgers marching band. And I did pause to think, Jews don't really do marching bands. Correct. If you want some marching bands, you need to get Gentiles. I mean, look, we outsourced. <laughs> oh, uh, Josh Cross is tisking me again. What? Josh was in marching band at high school. And so was Lisa Ann Sandel. All my right. Darling wife. All right. Mrs. Leah Leibovitz. So I Leibovitch stood in the grandstands. Also... I stood, I sat in, in the, the grandstands. Wait, in the grand grandstands? Like the special? Gra- the grande stands. The grande. The v- I was in the VIP section, which like <laughs> required a lot of like walking around 70th to get to 72nd to get in and then show like your ID and get your bag checked to go get into the VIP. By a dog. Very important. The VIP bleachers. Yeah. Is what that stands for. And it was really amazing. Yeah. I want my, the highlight besides seeing Liel, and it was sort of like seeing him at the marathon where I just like ran to the side and was like, Liel! And he ran over and you were like, and you were less fatigued this time. Yeah, you and I have a, have a long history of <laughs> me very walking down streets and you being like, hi, moron. And you being like, smile for pictures. <laughs> and you being like, whatever. Like, why? But the, besides Leo, the best part was Dr. Ruth, who was on her birthday tour. She turned 90. 90 this week. Right. She rode up in like an old like Robin's Egg blue Cadillac convertible. <laughs> and she's just like waving in the front seat. Just like she's standing or sitting. She's so teeny tiny. Like it's just she's just like having the time of her life. And I'm like, Dr. Ruth is doing it right. I love that Dr. Ruth has a pimp mobile on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Like the convertible blue. There was also like a big uh, van advertising the new uh, Yiddish Fiddler on the Roof oh at the Folkspain Theater, which I'm actually going to see mm-hmm. next month. And Joel Gray was in. He's the he's who's the director. The, who's the only celebrity sighting I've ever had? I was 12 or 13 years old. My dad, you know, I think I've talked about this before that that he would take me to New York to see some some Broadway theater every year for my birthday for two or three years um, in my preparation to be a gay male adult. <laughs> and um, and and we're having breakfast in some deli, and he's like, "That's Joel Gray." And then he explained to me who Joel Gray was, and it was Joel Gray. And I think he was having breakfast with Tony Roberts from Annie Hall, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Stephanie, what's up with you? No, I mean, I went I went to the parade at which Liel was honored. With a grand marshal title, I have yet to be a grand marshal in anything um, except my own life. But I did go on a really fun podcast called The Gender Knot, and uh-huh. we talked about whether the Me Too men, the accused men like Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose, can like get a comeback, like whether they get to make a public apology and get a comeback. And I was like, oh hell no, 
just go the F away. So you guys can listen to that um, in the podcast. Wait, or... wait, was there a distinction drawn between like Harvey Weinstein and Al Franken, let's say? Oh, yeah. No, he, Al Franken actually wasn't even part of this discussion, but basically the idea that like- I think Harvey goes away for good. Well, that like Charlie Rose wants to do a comeback show interviewing the other Me Too men. And I'm like, no. No, no. Like, Does he really? Yeah, that's like his, his, that's his plan. I heard and so that. like Mario Batali is like toying with opening new restaurants and it's just like, just chill. Chill for right. a little bit. Right, right, right. Just right. let us all get over this. Right. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. And just like talk to us in like, I don't know, a year at least. So that's the gender knot. People can the find gender that knot. on yeah, it was really iTunes fun. and assorted other platforms. Yes. That, that is that is so amazing. Can you imagine, you know, Hitler's agent getting a call from Hitler? It's like, yeah, so I have this idea. I have this show on the internet where I talk to other dictators about the genocide. <laughs> and try to rehabilitate ourselves. Yeah, He's so like, I'm in the bunker. Dictators in cars that's, getting gas that's, canisters. That's awesome. Israel Day Parade, gender knot, awesome, awesome. I hung out with one of our listeners uh, all day Saturday, Gabriel Savit Woods. Oh, he's famous. Um, who has written us a couple letters and has also uh, written a wonderful uh, young adult book. Um, he and his uh, wonderful wife, Livia, who is a uh, teaches Victorian literature. She has a, a dissertation about pregnancy in the Victorian novel. They came through New Haven. She is going to Trinity College in Hartford to teach. And he's like, you know, I just feel like you talk about New Haven a lot. I think we want to live there. So he came to shul with me Saturday morning and then stayed for Kiddush afterwards, like met all my buddies. And then I introduced him to my neighbors, Jack and Michelle, who are, have a first floor apartment to rent four houses down from me. They signed a lease. New best friend. And they're going to be living for, because you know why? Oh, and then that night I took him to, to Matt Polly's party for his Bruce Lee biography. Listeners, so I ask you, what other podcasts? Right, we are a full service podcast. Are you a show, a place to live, new best friends? Yep, yep, yep. By oh, the way, right, we won't it. bring you a casserole, but like <laughs> no. everything else. I've, by the way, I've never seen you so happy, Mark. I so It's the sharing the joy of New Haven, it seems. Sharing the joy of New Haven, sharing the joy of my school, sharing the joy of my friend Matt with this amazing new biography of Bruce Lee. And he's going to come on the show um, in a couple weeks. And But also, I just like they were such wonderful people. It's like, and she's she's like five months, six months pregnant and totally aglow and happy and they're embarking on this new life and it's, it was just like, and they passed through and they turned, they're like the awesome, if all of you listeners are that great, which I think you are, we have the best fan base ever and we are so proud to be a full service podcast. Um, now, speaking of full service, another thing we do is weddings, though no one's asked us to do a wedding yet, but we do weddings. And that is my segue to the news of the Jews, because Liel, you bring an important segment of news of the Jews today. What is going on in Israel? So this is an incredible story that really kind of, you know, uh, warmed my heart this week. It's a story of, of a man, an Israeli man named Ovadia Cohen. Ovadia is one of the grandchildren of Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, uh, of blessed memory, who really was one of the greatest rabbinic authorities of the last, you know, 100 years. He was uh, the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. He was the spiritual founder of the Shas political movement. Uh, and little Ovadia grew up mostly in his grandfather's home. So he was like his grandfather's chosen, beloved grandkid. Uh, so he grows up and gets married, has two children of his own. But throughout his life, he, he knows he's a gay man. And at some point, he has the courage uh, to come out of the closet and is abandoned by his entire family. Uh, and three years ago, met a, a wonderful man named Amichai Lanzman. Uh, and this week, the two of them are getting married to Orthodox gay men uh, whose wedding ceremony is being officiated by an Orthodox gay woman in Israel. Now, sadly, um, Ovadia's family will not be there to celebrate in his joy. Uh, but to me, the fact that we could have the story is just 
such a wonderful, heartwarming thing. Is the state of Israel, does it recognize that? No. No. But it also wouldn't recognize like a reform wedding. It would recognize no wedding uh, orchestrated outside of the rabbinate, which used to be run by Ovadia's grandfather. Right. I would watch this Netflix show. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's called The Crown. How do you say that in Hebrew? Ovadia Yosef was also really well dressed. I mean, did oh, you yeah. know what he was dressed? His like, garb with the I've, gold, I've seen some pecs. the brocaded yeah. gold, uh, the brocaded everything. gold, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the yeah. shades and yeah. the hat. He was like, he was a hat queen. Yeah. If if this was my wedding, I would kind of dress like that. <laughs> you had a wedding and didn't dress like that, Leo. It's so a I, mean, opportunity. I, I call BS on that a one. Chief Sephardic rabbi is exactly the kind of outfit you want to rock. Stephanie, what do you got for news of the Jews this week? Everybody's favorite Jewish actor, Jeff Goldblum. Yep. Got a record deal. This up and coming actor is is expanding. You know, like you may have heard of him. You is know, he the Fly, rap? Jurassic Park. He has like Igby a jazz goes down. record album. Um, he he also he has like a band called the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. Um, it's named after one of his mother's friends, Mildred Snitzer. <laughs> Mildred Snitzer. And I feel like she may be listening today. That's why my band is called the Juanita Martinez Orchestra. Well, maybe you will get uh, a jazz record deal with the Joan Roach Quartet Decca Records. And just it just shows that like you know you could be a sixty-five year old man in Hollywood, and there are still options available to you. There's still mountains to climb. All right. In the final news of the Jews, before we get to Ruby Namdar, I just want to say. Um, there's a, there was a lot going on this week. I mean, Harold Schultz stepping down as, as CEO of Starbucks, possibly to run for office, they they say. Um, Free coffee for everyone. It's the it's the 18th yard site of Beverly Hills 90210. Yes. Liel's and my favorite TV show ever went off the air 18 years ago. Should have gone off 20 years ago, but 18. <laughs> and, How dare you, sir. But, but most important of all, and I do believe this is a Jewish story, is that um, a young Indian boy won the Scripps Howard National Spelling Bee. Um, and, the you know, as we know, the Indian Americans have quite a run going with the Spelling Bee. They've won uh, quite a number of the last X number of Spelling Bees. Um, this year, I believe one of the words they had to spell was he had to spell Cholent on his way to victory, right? Or one of the contestants had to spell Cholent. And it got me thinking, you know, we're always looking for a Jewish angle. Where are the Jews in the National Spelling Bee? Like, we still have so- some of our kids still do okay in the science fair. You know, basically, though, we've ceased having any immigrant drive and our kids, they they suck. They play lacrosse or something. I don't know what they do. And it got me thinking, like, what is the Jewish history in the National Spelling Bee? So I was like, I was looking at the past winners on Wikipedia. Now, one of the, there's only two Jewish names like in the last 50 years. One of them. I just went. I just went on a tear, late night tear on this. One of them is this guy Scott Isaacs, who's become like a homeopath in Denver, Colorado. Not Jewish. He sings in local church choirs. It's like one of those German guys named Isaacs. Plus, he's a homeopath. And then I was like, well, what about Rebecca Sealfon, who was homeschooled in Brooklyn and famously shouted all the word, the letters of U and M, and became this early YouTube sensation? One of her words was phylactery. So, but she's turned her back. If in fact she was Jewish, which I think she was, she reads Jewish to me. She's turned her back on the spelling bee. She's like, it ruined my life because I became this, you know, it was like Howard Dean with the scream. He became this YouTube sensation. So my message is basically this. I feel like- Don't go in spelling bees. My my message is this. I want to conclude this week's News of the Jews by saying to the young Jewish teenagers out there- uh, We have autocorrect now. You got to get hungry. don't need to do it. We need you guys. It's like, we. I want to see some Jews doing something in the spelling bee. Speaking of, we got to get hungry. Like these words, in 2013, the winning word was knadel. K-N-A-I-D-E-L. Well, that like, was a controversial one because but, they went with the Webster no. spelling and then Yivo was like, that's not how you transliterate Canadal. 2016, there was Kremslach and it's like, there's a way in which these <laughs> just like, random Yiddish food if, words. If, if any so yes, get hungry. If any Chabad kid enters the spelling bee, they're just going to dominate. It's like, Oh, Knadels, well, Kufnun, Yudun, right, well, like, Yudun, <laughs> Done. What else you got for me? The chaotic life of a 12-year-old is too hard and you never know what's coming next. 
But in spelling, things have logic and line. And in spelling, there's some greater design. Though in school we seem strange, at the B we seem better. Once we count out each letter in our mind. And we find we like spelling. Here's how I met our next guest. Um, I read his book in Hebrew, Abayit Asher Nechav. Um, and it was one of the most phenomenal books uh, I've ever read in my life. And then I went ahead and I did something I have never done before or since. I, I wrote him a fan note. And I said, this is an amazing book and I would love to take you out to breakfast and, and get to know you. Uh, and then as soon as I met him, uh, I understood that we we're going to be friends for a very long time. And so it is my pleasure to welcome uh, our very first unorthodox book club author, uh, the award-winning, uh, critically acclaimed, The Ruined House, Mr. Ruby Namdar. Bokertov. Bokertov. Nice to be here. So nice to meet you. And thank, thank you. you guys thank for you. conducting this interview in English. Because <laughs> your book was initially published in Hebrew, and now... Now it's out in English uh, by HarperCollins. So Ruby, tell us what this book is about. A lot okay. of our listeners actually have read it, and we have questions from them, which we'll get to later. But for, for the people who haven't yet really, really sunk their teeth into all 513 uh, pages. 28, <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the review. I'm That's in... a good thing. Oh, you're in there. The novel tells of a year in the life of uh, Andrew Cohen, who is a professor of comparative uh, culture. There's no such discipline. He is a, he's like a caricature of, of the New York success story. He is handsome and accomplished, and he publishes in all the right places, and he sits on all the right boards, and he's happily divorced, so he has his kind of relationships all I like the idea of being happily divorced. Happily divorced. And he is. He's yes. happily divorced. Yeah. Happy, I mean, he's the only one who's happy in this arrangement. Right. But, you know, he's happy. And, you know, dates a woman half his years. And it's, 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 it's disgusting and it's enviable and it's cliche. And he, he is a walking, living cliche in some ways. And the novel goes with him um, for a year in his life, the year 2000. And uh, during this year, his mind, life... All the structures of his world uh, begin to unravel and 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 uh, collapse, and as this happens, uh, Professor Cohen, who until now has been a Jew by name only, he begins to see visions of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, uh, and he has no idea, he has no emotional or intellectual tools to to handle to deal with what happens to him. He does what we all would do in this case, uh, deny as much as he can, and in ways keeps denying until the very end. Uh, but the, these visions become stronger, bigger, more demanding, more alluring, more scary, and they almost threaten to swallow him, to like drag him down. And meanwhile, his daughter is getting sort of gingerly in touch with her own Judaism. And, yes, very gingerly. Uh, very gingerly. <laughs> and to me, I mean, I'll just say at the you know, I'm reading this, and first of all, I just it just was a wonderful, pitch perfect satire of a certain kind of guy. Like he's yeah. got his tweed yes. jackets, and he's got his subscription to the New York Review, and he's got his bottle of port, and and somehow all of these material comforts just aren't enough. 
They're just like it. He yeah. he. So he starts to decompensate. And for me, it it was it was just a critique of a certain kind of um, the term. How do you say douchebag in America? <laughs> I don't know if you. Comment vous dit le douchebag? Comment dit on? But it's not it's, a just a du- like he's not like a finance bro. He's he's no. very specifically this like intel. He's upper west. He's upper west side. Like he teaches down at NYU, but he lives up by Columbia. He's yeah. like a New York. You know, he's a number. He's a one train intellectual douchebag and. Um, and that's a type that, and it's a type that Saul Bellow has written about. It's a type yes, that, that Philip Roth has written. It's a character because he thinks that that's, I mean, yes, he has his different version of American success. Some books, the version is, you know, is money. That's not what he's after per se. He's after no. a certain kind of status. And I was amazed that you got that as an Israeli because I don't, I don't think you have that kind of douchebag over there. Do Look, you? we have we we have we have a <laughs> douchebag dumb in abundance, and every every place has it. And I, it's it's interesting. I don't even think of him as a complete douchebag. I I find him to be a complex, in his simple simplisticness, simplicity, simplicity. Simplicity, yeah. Uh, he, he still there's a complex complexity to his character, and I I I discovered him as I was writing, and I became less alienated and more more uh, empathic hmm. as I was writing him uh, but um, you know I, it's it's part of the discovery I mean arriving in New York I arrived in New York in the year 2000 so it's been a while and uh, I, I arrived in New York not through the usual gate through which most of my Israeli peers would appear I didn't go to Brooklyn and live in like you know a, a, a small immigrant artist, you know, intellectual enclave. I, I, I came to the West Side and and had a kind of a a very different entry uh, than than most of the Israelis I know. So I I got a glimpse into a, into a world that did really look like and feel and sound like the work of Bello Roth, even Malamud, and also authors I discovered at the same time. So there was this amazing discovery of American Jewish literature, and we can talk. So about this why we don't know anything about this literature in right. Israel, at that, least not when I was growing up. So this up. is exactly the question The question I want to ask. When we were growing up, uh, you and I, in, in Eretz Israel, uh, you would walk into the high school library, and this is something that happened to me personally. You'd ask mm-hmm. for Jewish literature. You'd get, you know, Amos Oz. You'd get Agnon. You'd get, yeah. you know... Shalom Aleichem. Shalom Aleichem, maybe. You'd yeah. get Israeli, mainly yeah, yeah, writers, yeah. right? Um Roth, Bello, Malamud, these guys were, were virtually unknown uh, where, when we grew up. Now, here you are, uh, an Israeli author, moving to New York, writing in Hebrew the great American novel <laughs> about the greatest Bello character Bello could never create or has never created. What is that about? Is that an attempt to kind of collapse the distance between Jews here, there, and everywhere? Is that a, a kind of defiant... Uh, attempt to say to the American, you know, Jewish literary community, "Hey, I could do you one better." What are you feeling when you're There's doing this? The, you, you know, it's it, it's all of the above and a bunch more. But this is all hindsight because when you actually sit and write, uh, you know, you're just consumed by a certain gesture, by a certain story, by a certain voice, a tone, a character, and uh, endlessly curious about it and just want to take it to its very end to like. 
to see how I can maximize this character and this life and this universe that is reflecting in this in in Andrew's life. Uh, it is only in hindsight that when I I look back at at my at the process and and how it how this work was born and why it took so long to to be written, and I understand that in ways I was processing my move to New York. I was processing a, a a very pleasant culture shock that I wasn't really aware of, maybe, because, you know, Jerusalem and New York, there is a certain continuity, It's uh, especially if you're on the Upper West Side. But there <laughs> is, there is a certain uh, discovery, a friction that is caused by moving to this vast, amazing city. And I think that this was my my response, my artistic response to this world. And if there is a criticism in it, uh, at the same time, there is a certain, uh, I think, fascination. Uh, I, I don't, I, I, this book was read by some critic as a bitter uh, criticism of America, America, American Jewry. I never intended it to be that, not, not in the least. I mean, it, it pokes fun at everyone, but it was not meant at least by me to be a, a bitter criticism. But what it is to me is, is a profoundly New York book, right? There's like mm-hmm. an extensive description of Barney Greengrass on the Upper West Side. Yeah. There's all of these sorts of... Ruby has done his research. Yeah, yeah there's I all these. There's yes, a Hungarian absolutely. bakery. Like there's all... Or pastry shop. Is that what yes, it is? The there's a Hungarian shop. pastry shop. I mean, there's, there's these iconic New York spots. And to me reading it, I kept thinking, it's so weird to me that it was translated into English and that like... Israelis read this, what seems to me so profoundly New York and American. Maze <laughs> Zebar. And I, and I know, Liel, you sort of had the opposite reaction. I couldn't believe it was translated into English. The Hebrew is so magnificent and sparkling. So how did Israelis... I mean, God, God bless Hillel Halkin for this translation. I but know, the Hebrew he's amazing. Is, is this man is amazing. Yeah, I mean, so how did this play in Israel? Like, what is this city over there? I mean, a lot of them obviously know New York, but I mean, how do you think it reads differently? I I think before I let Ruby answer, I will say that it won the the equivalent of the Israeli Pulitzer, the the highest literary honor, the Sapir Prize in Israel. Even though after he won it, they changed the rules so no expat could ever win it again. Yeah, Correct. So that you fucked shame. it up for every Israeli in yeah, New York, yeah, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. I kind of did. And people people keep reminding me of that. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. on podcasts and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I was lucky that I, I came to New York and not, uh, I don't know, Omaha or somewhere because New York is is uh, is an object of, of desire and, and fascination for everyone. And therefore, when you write about New York... Everybody is always interested. It's amazing to see how, even now, how how magnetic uh, this city is, and uh, how symbolic. And and uh, and Israelis are very fascinated with it. I didn't sit and make a plan. Okay, I'm going to write about New York so I can engage my Israeli readers. I wrote what needed to be written. One of the um, you know many amazing things about this book is that there are uh, in between the chapters faux Talmud pages, yes, uh, which provide this kind of meta-commentary. This is why um, you can't get it on Kindle. Whatever they do on Kindle, it's not doing it's, for it. It's, it's not you, doing it's, it. It's, I it's know. Not, it's not you need the printed page you need for the printed these. Page. Yeah. Uh, which, which obviously, you know, you could enjoy even if you kind of skip over, which I assume some readers did, uh, and uh, you don't have to have a full appreciation of what a Talmud page looks like. But the whole book, uh, I think requires really to 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 get to grasp uh, a fair 
level of Jewish literacy. Is is writing the book, uh, was it in part kind of your way of saying, hey, you know, this is your heritage, jump into it? Was it was it kind of an attempt to task people with, with yeah, becoming more absolutely. literate Jewishly? Absolutely, yeah. I think that... Um, um, I, I hope not in a preachy kind of imposing way, but I, I do feel that we're sitting on a vast cultural treasure, an unbelievable a, a civilization and, and a t- a amazing imagery, text, language. And that I feel that we in ways either squander or are unaware of. And, uh, well, including yes. our novelists. I mean, yes. a lot of Jewish novelists never have any actual uh, Jewish religious yeah. or, There's or a lot heritage this, yeah. coming through in their writing at all. And you know that's a problem. It's because it is, yes, these texts have a strong religious current in them. Sometimes it's more than a current. But uh, but these are also, the. it's also our Shakespeare and Chaucer and everything else. And like and the fact that these are religious texts causes many of, of our my peers, you know, in Israel and in America, to just ignore the, the the depth of the language and culture in which they're writing. So Jewish Jewish authors in America write about Jewish folklore, which is funny and you know, there's a limit also to how much you can giggle about pickles and you know no roses and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you know the the great master Roth just left us last week, you know, and he was amazing at it. And then there's a there's a moment where it, in my opinion, it ends this folklore. It's not no longer interesting. But these uh, but um, the 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 cultural depth of of Jew, of Ju- Judaism or Jewish culture are incredible and they're unexplored. I I feel that they're terra incognita for us. There. It's interesting that you mentioned giggliness because I've I've heard you say in a public forum and I yes. I delighted at hearing you you know booed by everyone present. <laughs> yes, uh, that that there was something almost perverse about uh, yes. how deeply American Jewish authors rely on humor, yes. which you saw as a kind of weakness. I did. I think tell that. Tell me why. I'll tell you. I think that first of all, this might be the Israeli in me and you because we, you know, we grew up on a very different. Because we're tough. We're tough. We don't make the joke. We're, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that there is a certain um, it's a certain trend. It's not. It's beyond the trend. It's it became an identity uh, for American Jews and some Israeli Jews. A, a, this image of, of of this clowny jester-like image, as if the Jew is always funny, and when somebody is always funny, my question is, why are you always funny? What is there any something wrong? Because life is not just funny, and and laughter is not the only medium of expression, and the self is never. It's it's it. If you're just funny, to me, it's a pathology. And I look for the roots of it, and in my opinion, it's deep insecurity. So, is it is it? Do you see less of that in Israel? And I'll tell you what I mean. I remember Leo wrote a very good piece about Transparent, which is a show, a show I like a lot that he mm-hmm. didn't like. One of his insights about the piece was that when they go to Israel and they meet their Israeli cousins who they didn't know they had because somebody disappeared, the father left the family and got a sec- had a second family in Israel. And Leo wrote something like, "They get to Israel and meet these Israeli cousins." 
who are who are unlike them in that they are fully actualized people who actually have lives and mar- successful marriages and are happy and healthy and robust. Mm-hmm. And whereas their entire identity in as L.A. Jews is that they're basically in pain and neurotic and not in a stereotypical way. They're just they're suffering all the time yeah. and they can't relate to these Israeli Jews who actually aren't whose defining trait is not neurosis. I mean, they also filmed it in L.A. So oh, did yeah. they? they didn't even go to yeah. Israel. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love them. The but... scene. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Right. A... So, but is that... so this is yeah, this is an extreme version of it but I you know again I'm not here to criticize a a American Jewish culture I mean this book is a book of fascination by it now you love us clearly but uh, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm by us. now I'm by, by you now are I'm, I'm, I am more you than than I am a Jerusalemite I mean 18 years I'm, I'm raising family here you yeah. know I'm, I'm raising a dog here that's a commitment that's a, that's a cultural <laughs> that's commitment. commitment yeah you're not going to quarantine the dog Jew, and take it to Israel an American the... Jewish uh, golden doodle that's a lot <laughs> But, That's what my brother Jonathan uh, has. Yes, All right. you see, it's yeah. a, it's a new trend in Jewish culture. Yeah, but really, um, it it also could be because I, I I'm not Ashkenazi, I'm Sephardi. I don't know that that we don't have this kind of a self presentation. Wasn't allowed to laugh about clown. back there in Tehran. <laughs> yeah, definitely, we didn't have this obsessive need to self deprecate. And I think honestly, if I'm going to really go out on this, I would say that. Uh, the, the origins of it, in my opinion, are the fact that uh, European Jews internalized the gaze of the Europeans who found us, you, loathsome and ridiculous. And the Jews became, a, a, I, I would almost say, enamored with this persona. It's as if if we make ourselves ridiculous, then the, the, the German or Polish a neighbor is not going to tell us you're a joke, you're ridiculous, you're loathsome. Hmm. That's like the foundation of like comic self-defense. Yes, exactly. And I find that this this is the moment where humor stops being a strength and it's actually a sign of pathology. And I think that this, this, this border, this boundary is walked very thinly and, and by now many of, many of our peers, they, they can't even imagine a, a, a Jewish existence that's not of, of a joker. And and why? I mean, how did we become a nation of jokers and, and, and jesters? From, from what? Where does it stem from? Not from good places, in my opinion. And then we built this whole, or, you know, whole tower of words around it of how it's strength and how it's our core and how it's amazing and how it's, yeah, it is all of the above. And at the same time, no, it's, it's, a, it's scar no. tissue. We have some questions from listeners. Um, so this one's from Howard Lieberman. Why have Cohen live by Columbia and teach at NYU? <laughs> That's a great question. Thank you. Um, because these two universities, for me, uh, symbolize two two um, poles, perhaps, of um, you know intellectual pursuit or academia. I mean, Columbia is that a majestic old world never mind what what actually goes on in in you know in the in the campus but the, what the campus and and the spirit of the place symbolize is this old world majestic conservative perhaps a deep rooted knowledge and sense of belonging and not necessarily very jewish and nyu is the exact opposite it was it's a new thing it's brave it's chutzpahdik I see it as a very Jewish university in many ways. It's radical in many ways that, you know, Colombia has just recently become. 
and and Andrew is between these two poles. I mean, this this book is also about intellect and intellectual pursuit and and intellectual fantasies. So these are two main intellectual fantasies in his world. So he has one foot here and one foot there. And we have a spoilery-ish question from Lauren Amdursky. She says, what led you to decide to write about the parallel of 9-11 and the destruction of the temple? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that spoilery because someone may not know that the temple was destroyed or that 9-11 happened? Just that the book plays into, well, oh. like when I opened the book and the book starts in, two, in su- like September 2000, oh, oh, I, I was like, oh, I imagine, a, I imagine right. that 9-11 plays some role, but mm-hmm. you have to get, yeah. like, you know, it's... You have to read the book. You have to read the book to know yeah. what, what it is. Yeah. Well, I... I did not want to write a book about 9-11. I mean, not... Th- thank you for that, but Yeah, I yeah. appreciate it. I mean, I feel like it was done, and uh, I don't like to do things that were done. It's one of my many faults. I, uh, I, it did, however, um, serve me as kind of a focal point that remains outside of the frame. Uh, there, was, there was something about the shock of 9-11, this... The, the crack, a certain crack that now seems invisible in, in our self-confidence, in our feeling of in, in, invincibility uh, that 9-11 did. And I think we have yet to understand the cultural impact of this event. And we will not know it. We may see it in 100 years. In hindsight, it might be interpreted as if it, I could go as 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 much as like the the decline of the great American empire, maybe yes and maybe not. Uh, it was it was read like this. To me, there was something because I see New York as a city that sits on the continuum of sacred cities. It really reminds me of Jerusalem in many ways and of ancient Jerusalem and the temple. There is this uh, the, the the mixture of of arrogance, beauty. A holiness, carnality, uh, yeah, lust, lust, yeah. Uh, cor- corruption, holiness, transcendence, and therefore it seemed to me a natural, a natural connection. But I didn't want to make it too strong. It was very important for me to make it a hint and not to delve into it. I don't like when metaphors become over explicit. I like the idea of there being a sort of continuum, an index of sacred cities. It's like. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem, New York, Salt Lake, yeah. Salt Lake, New Haven, Omaha, New Haven, Peoria, Great Neck. <laughs> we can't let you out of here without getting to to Philip Roth. You've written about Philip Roth yes. and, what he, and what he meant to you. He, of course, was often loathed for not writing this kind of character or for writing this kind of character. But w- what did he mean to you as someone who I gather you didn't encounter in Israel? Back to what Leah was saying that he's not someone no, widely read I there. I discovered the Roth. Um, in New York uh, when I arrived and, 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 and reading Portnoy's complaint for the first time uh, was, uh, was a revelation to me because they, there, here there is a whole different literary world that's very Jewish, not in a way that I know, very irreverent, in my opinion a literary masterpiece, disgusting, terrible, wonderful, complex, and we were not told about it. And I think that there's a reason, because I think that the cultural establishment in Israel was intimidated by the idea that there is serious and authentic Jewish culture that's happening not in the Middle East in Israel, between the Jordan and the sea, and that does not speak about sabras and, and wars and Arabs and second-generation Holocaust. But look, not to, not to dive into my, my well-documented <laughs> distaste for Philip Roth, 
I will ask you this. Is it possible, following your own book, right, and your own assertions, is it possible that actually what the, quote-unquote, literary establishment in Israel, whatever that is, was saying, look, all of Roth's ejaculations, both literally and figuratively speaking, are very nice, but he's kind of an Andrew P. Cohen character. He's someone who is, I mean, as 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 a, as a human, right? He's someone who chases these uh, these pleasurable peaks, uh, not realizing that the cargo he's leaving behind, the emotional, spiritual, religious tradition that he's aching to to run away from, uh, is uh, always there to wrestle with him and 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 subdue him in the end. Yes, I think that I think yes, and that's why I like him. Yeah, I, mean, I like complex characters. I like tragic characters. In in fact, like wouldn't most great literature, in a sense, be diasporic, be alienated? I mean, what if if people yeah. are all happy and well rounded sabras, they're just going to write, you know, they're going to write boring sabra literature about yeah. how robust and great they are. I know I yeah. agree with that, but I'm, but I, I, there's something to me, you know, specific about Roth that doesn't, by the way, apply to Bello or Malamud or Potok. That is just. Malamud's a genius. I mean, so Ruben, yeah. who's your favorite Malamud. Jewish American author? That's what I was going to ask him. So look, um, I get, I don't think counting Bashevi Zinger's one works, although he's absolutely my uh, and and him we read in Israel yes. because he was Yiddish and it was something. It else. was like old world, so it was fine. Yes. He was, as we say yes. in in Tehran, unzeret. Yes, what, what exactly. Us, Whatever us, he right. said, exactly. He really spoke the the to me. And he he really uh, he, he there's a depth to him that uh, that I think that. Let me ask you. Wait, that. but he's not counting him. So what's he going to say? I thought you said. Well, I'm not I'm, counting I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm counting him by okay, not counting okay. so him. But I, I, I. But still, I mean, Roth. I, I would eventually, even though Bello made a huge impression on me, and there's a big gesture to Bello in this novel. Eventually, I would say Roth was my gateway. Ruby Namdar, thank you so much for being thank our Jew you. of the Week and thank for writing you. The Ruined House. It's been thank wonderful you. to have you kick off the Unorthodox Book Club. Thank you all. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. We have a fun treat today. We are joined by Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. She's a writer for the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine. And she had a great piece about Philip Roth and what he meant to her Jewish education. Taffy, welcome. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Will you come in in person sometime, Taffy? I will. Okay. I absolutely will. I just, I'm, I, I, yes. I mean, you're in New Jersey for crying out loud. You could have catapulted here. I could have, could have catapulted. <laughs> but it's more authentic for this conversation about Philip Roth. That's true. So, yeah, I'm, I'm here reporting live. So, I'm, I'm on the ground 15, 15 minutes away from Newark. So we just talked to Ruby Namdar, who, you know, discovered Philip Roth basically when he moved to America in, you know, in, in, his, in his 30s. Um, you similarly were kept from Roth as a child. Tell us, tell us about your journey to Roth. Um, well, I grew up in this house where my mother wouldn't let me read young adult literature. Um, because it had these pictures of these young girls, and and my mother had four daughters and was extremely, extremely worried about our moral education, our virginities. She, you know, she had she had one plan, and it was we were all going to leave the house virgins, no, no, no bad ideas in our heads. Um, and my older sister, who's far smarter than I am, um, my older sister Tracy. Um, started smuggling in Philip Roth books, which did not have anyone on the cover. They just had these, this, like, these thick books with these fancy font. And um, she would sit there at the table reading like Portnoy's complaint while my mother would rant and rave about like the Babysitter's Club or... Sweet Valley High books. Wait, can I just read the sentence from this piece you wrote? You said, sure. my mother, always on the lookout for the ways that the world was trying to rip her many daughters, many virginities away from them, wouldn't let me read Sweet Valley High books like the rest of the sixth graders at my school. She took yeah. one look at the peach-cheeked, yellow-haired twins with sparkling Gentile genetics on the covers of those books, and she basically saw a porno. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And this was a religious household, right? This was a religious household. My mother became religious when I was 12. So around that time, I was kind of blindsided by like, wait, so we're not just plain American Jews anymore. Now, like, we're just Jewish. Now we are like super Jewish. Now we are exclusively Jewish. Um, and I kept sort of t- 
testing, like, what am I still allowed to get away with? Wait, but this is the 80s and your mother didn't get religious till then. She didn't know when she saw your sister reading Portnoy's complaint what it was? She was an Israeli immigrant. And she, and also there is, she didn't know about Philip Roth. She hadn't read Philip Roth, but she knew about him. And her values at the time, she was an immigrant. She was really when she emigrated, she became really immersed in American culture and really believed in the power of literature and the power of, of it was very important to her that we be well-read and sophisticated um, because she saw those books on the same shelves as, you know, Anna Karenina and, you know, Anna Karenina. Who can complain about Anna Karenina? Right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Anna Karenina. So, let's just let's just admit that. Yep. So what Straight happened? Up. What happened when you started reading Philip Roth's books? So when I started reading Philip Roth books, I could not believe like how amazing and dirty they were. I couldn't believe how smart they were. I it, I couldn't believe how much I, as a kind of 12-year-old, identified with this man for all of his, you know, all of, like, all of the ways he wanted to break out from where he was from, um, how horny he was. Like, that, that was, we had a lot in common, right? Like... You are both prepubescent. We were, I mean, he wasn't. One of you, <laughs> one of you remained that yeah. for life. The other grew up to be a wonderful writer and is talking to us right now. Leo's not a fan. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he... He was in touch with this, with this outrage, but more than anything, to me, he was in touch with these questions about being Jewish and being American. You know, how much are you supposed to talk about the Holocaust? How much are you supposed to talk about anti-Semitism? How much are you supposed to worry about these things? Um, and I, and and I became somebody in life who literally was at a party on Saturday night talking about (laughs) the Holocaust, totally inappropriately, talking about, you know, the camps we're all going to end up in, um, which is, which is why I'm not invited to that many parties. Um, But I'm someone who, who is fairly obsessed with these questions. And they were always questions in my house that you, you know, you know, the, the Jewish principle of, this is not an exact an exact definition, but it, it always reminds me of, you know, Marit Ayan, where you you cannot be a man with a yarmulke walking into a non-kosher restaurant because then you will be responsible for somebody who is Jewish thinking that that non-kosher restaurant is kosher. I, I, I reject that. Um, but I think I reject that because of Philip Roth. And I think that somewhere along the way, our concerns about talking about Jewish questions openly turned us into a people who were encouraged to ask questions, to a people who were encouraged to whisper questions, to a people who, judging from the, um, the story I did last year for the Times Magazine about, um, about Footsteps, the organization that helps ultra-Orthodox Jews transition into secular life, we have become people who are not allowed to even think questions um, at our most distilled and concentrated versions of orthodoxy. So he, what he was doing was he was saying, you are allowed to be American. You are allowed to 
question this. You are allowed to wonder about all of this stuff. And you're allowed to do it out loud. And if you do it out loud, that gives you a place at the table of American struggle. It is a very specific thing to be Jewish and American, especially at a time, you know, the, the time where he was writing about. Those books were 30 years old by the time I was reading them. He was fresh off of a generation that saw horrible things. He came from a generation that saw horrible things. I was in a generation where the horrible things were two generations removed, but he was he was coming straight from this thing, and I was too, because suddenly everybody in my life had become Orthodox. It's so crazy. That sister, Tracy, totally betrayed me and became Orthodox as well. Like they, <laughs> all, they all did it, and I was stuck alone in that house, me and Philip Roth, knowing that it was okay to not take it all at its, at its face value and not take everyone's word for something, to wonder, like, what is my place in the world? So... A comment and two questions. That were, like every like every question or every talk you've ever given. A comment and two questions. The comment is that's like the most Jewish question. But of I think all. you've answered it. I was going to say, what kind of nice Jewish girl has fam, family of daughters has names like Tracy and Taffy? But that was before your mother became from. So right, that so you could see you could see what happened. Right, and you're and you're Tracy, Taffy, Marissa. And then Connie. Ah, <laughs> uh, there we go. There we go. I was waiting. And just so you know, Marissa goes by Miriam. Now. Nice. Oh, there we go. I was I was waiting for a Stacy, a Melissa, an Amy. I know. No, it's like you can see the story of my family straight through. Totally. Okay. So now two questions. Uh, rapid fire round. First of all, favorite Philip Roth novel or short story? American Pastoral. I know it's it's a basic it's a basic answer, but it. It's but a little it's basic, but it's totally respectable. My answer to that is always, I married a communist, which doesn't get enough. Really? Love. Yeah. I think of the trilogy. I Married a Communist is the weakest, and it reminds me of something that Jonathan Franzen says, which is that revenge writing, the reason it took him so long to write Freedom was because he was like writing toward this revenge mm. for the people who had talked badly about him in the, in the Oprah situation. That's why it took him so long, because no good literature comes from revenge, and I Married a Communist is certainly like his Claire Bloom book. I, I guess that's true. I hear what you're saying, but I, to me, it just... But, you, but you're allowed to like what you like. And I also have red diaper babies in my background, and so a lot of it resonated. And then the, the final question is, since I have four daughters and you are one of four daughters, any advice? Like, wh- how do I make sure they turn out as well as you? I mean, I mean, walk with me through Crown Heights and listen to the whispers and ask, ask yourself if turning out well is a relative thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so congratulations on having four daughters. We are like, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we are our own little government. Um, we are the most cohesive unit. I have two sons and they can barely, like, I cannot picture them ever speaking to each other again after, after my funeral. I hope this is wrong, but uh, daughters is the way to go. It just get through the emotional warfare and you will be fine. Awesome. Don't intervene. Let me say Don't as, intervene. <laughs> let them find their way. Let me say as somebody who's become Be nice to the second one. Yeah. Yes. Well, and no, that's that's so true. That's truer than you know. Taffy Brodesser Ackner, uh, thank you for making your debut on Unorthodox to talk to us about your childhood and Philip Roth. And we look forward to seeing you in person across the, the river sometimes. <laughs> what a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks so much. Taffy. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, bye. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Should have woke up before you broke up and gave it just a little more try. You should have told her you loved her before you broke her heart. 
Two bits of mail this week. The first of them is from Jeffrey Bluestein, who wrote to um, to correct me on my. I had said that that when Jews move out of a house, they often leave mezuzot behind. And he said, it's my understanding that when a Jew moves out, the mezuzahs are to be removed unless another Jew moves in. There's the avodazara issues of either the Gentile taking the amulet as something to be prayed to or simply ripping them out in home improvements. I'm not sure if Muslims are exempt since they're monotheistic, but that may just be too much to verify. So I checked with our in-house rabbinic sage Menachem Butler, who checked with his in-house rabbinic sage Gil Student, who's literally the, in-house, literally in-house, who is the editor of TorahMusings.com. And Gil, Rabbi Gil Student wrote, I believe that the standard practice is to leave the mezuzot if Jews are moving in, but you can insist that they pay for them and remove them if they refuse. Most people just pay it forward, so to speak, rather than negotiating with the incoming tenants. Well, that's big of them. Gil Student goes on, if Gentiles move in, you remove the mezuzot because they might treat the scrolls disrespectfully. Jews might also treat the scrolls disrespectfully, but they're obligated to have mezuzot, so you're helping them do the mitzvah. Anything else they do with it is their problem, not yours. All right, so we've, we've cleared that up. One more letter. Shalom, friends. I was listening to Yossi Klein Halevi, uh, and I want to provide a counterpoint. In Israel, I know people who are not anguished or upset. We're doing great. Iran tried to kill us with rockets in the north. We smashed them. Hamas tried to invade our border in the south to kill us, and we smashed them. They call for us to be boycotted, and countries have started to move their embassies to Jerusalem after 70 years. The economy's good. Tourism's better than ever. People are making money, having lots of kids, and giving thanks to God. Life is good. That is what most Israelis I know are feeling. We're not shedding tears or rending our garments over terrorists whom our brave soldiers have killed to defend us, nor will we allow others to saddle us with Hamas's blood guilt. We are not afraid. We are strong. We are happy. We are confident. Don't project your anxiety onto us from the U.S., Yossi. I just inserted the Yossi there. Things are complicated and imperfect, but good. The Israeli attitude is preternaturally positive, hopeful, and forward-looking. We are busy loving life over here, warts and all. Get on board. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. Rabbi Eitan Levi, Tekoa, Gush, Etzion, Yisrael. I mean. So look, I couldn't not read that letter, but I do want to say if somebody wants to, if some leftist wants to craft the antithesis of that letter and send it to us, I will read that as well. But the 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 sort of robust um, maniacal perfection of that of the Zionism of that letter had to be shared. If you want to send a letter, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. We are doing our regular Ask Unorthodox column, so send us your questions. You can ask for etiquette tips, advice, uh, recommendations for summer camps. Um, we'll come and mezuzah your doorpost if you like. Whatever you like, put Ask Unorthodox in the subject line. Uh, big news. So our next live show at the JCC Manhattan is going to be Amazing. Amazing. It's going to be marvelous. Um, we have made a documentary film, a 10-minute documentary movie uh, titled Is It Okay to Say Jap? In which we tackle the question, oft debated in this studio, of whether the word Jap is irredeemably offensive or whether it has been reclaimed by proud Jewish women of the aughts and teens. So we made a movie um, starring some members of our own cast here, starring Anne Royfe, starring Batsheva Marcus from the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance and Judith Rosenbaum from the Jewish Women's Archives and and a, a great cast of characters in which they talk about the history of the word Jap and, and we look at archival footage and the history of the development of the word. And we're going to have an event at the JCC where we're going to debut the movie and then have a big town hall discussion about the word word Jap. This is Jewish American princess, not the slur for Japanese people. And our special discutant will be none other than odd mom outs, Jill Kargman, one of the great New York City Jewesses. So look, you want to go to jccmanhattan.org, click on events, 
buy tickets. It's going to be July 18th at like 7-ish, 7, 7.30. I don't know. Come early. Have have a nosh. We'll start when we start. And it's going to be, I think, the greatest live show ever. Stephanie will be practicing her chops for that live show June 14th at the Jewish Museum. What are you doing at the Jewish Museum, Stephanie? I am moderating the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book event. It's um, going to be a great panel. I'm talking to Rachel Kadish and Lisa Moses-Leff. The title is Writers Make the Best Detectives. And we're going to be having a nice conversation about Rachel's book, The Weight of Ink, and Lisa's book, The Archive Thief. And we're just going to be having a lot of fun. My grandma is going to be there. (laughs) It is my grandma Seal's birthday, and she's going to be there. Amazing. So, yeah, I can't can't think of any other reason better to do something. So if people want to be with us, love us, you've got June 14th with you, you've got uh, July 18th, uh, and then looking way forward, October 14th, this is going to be a cool fundraiser. So you know I'm giving a class at One Day University, right? right? Our great sponsor. Um, if you come to my October 14th class on the history of religion in America, the fabulous Steve Shragus, who owns One Day U, is going to donate 50% of the ticket price to our fundraising drive, to the show Unorthodox. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? amazing. So if you go to One Day U and, and register for with the code MARK, <laughs> this was Steve's idea, uh, We will he will lower the ticket price from $95 to $75, and then half of the $75 will go to Tablet. So look, if you want to give money and you want to hear me talk about American religion, that's how you do it. One Day U, October 14th class. Code Enter MARK. MARK. Code word <laughs> Mark. Have you ever been happier? Never been happier. Um, mazel tovs. Uh, Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have the biggest mazel tov to my sister-in-law, Sarah Cohen. She got engaged to the wonderful David Silver, and I am so excited for them. It's just amazing. I'm like full of happiness. And now I have all this wedding know-how, and I can help <laughs> someone else. You're now the, the wedding Yoda. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. Liel, what you got? So once again, um, a, a, a huge mazel tov. Uh, to the 40,000 of us uh, who took Fifth Avenue by storm uh, and who showed so much pride and joy to Grant Silverstein and Michael Miller for organizing this in the JCRC. And also to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., which responding to some very uncouth anti-Semitic tweets uh, by the supreme leader of Iran uh, simply posted um, a video for Mean Girls saying, why are you so obsessed with me? <laughs> the Israeli embassy posted Which, that. You know, is how you do it. That's awesome. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna claim a lot of Mazel Tov oxygen. Uh, I'm gonna lean way mazel into. Tov I'm gonna man spread all over my Mazel Tovs this week Please because don't. a lot of listeners asked if they could if they could have Mazel Tovs, and I'm turning it over to them. Sarah Geiger and Sophie Brookover. By the way, I love the name Sophie Brookover. It's like. Jewish and waspy at the same. You like you don't know what she you don't know what right. she is. Contains multitudes. It contains multitudes. They wrote to request a mazel tov for their youngest sister, Charlotte Brookover. Oh yeah, who just graduated from Hunter College with her master's in social work. Sophie writes, Charlotte is the first topic Sarah and I agreed on the day she was born, that she was the very best baby in the whole world, and we have never stopped agreeing. Charlotte, no longer a baby, but still the very best, is the living embodiment of Tikkun Olam, a gentle, graceful, humane, no-nonsense gem of a woman we love to utter distraction who is devoting her professional life to the well-being of others. Look at that. Oh, my God. Mazel tov to you, the well-named Charlotte Brookover. And then... A big mazel tov to David Cohen. Which David Cohen, you ask? That could be about 40 of our listeners. It's not David Silver who's marrying Sarah Cohen? Not David Silver marrying your sister-in-law. This is David Cohen who has a fifth wedding anniversary. He also has a new baby. He also has a fabulous wife named Emily who wrote to us and said, just let David know how much I appreciate all that he does for the family. And so David, 
God bless you. Mazel tov on your fifth. And look, we at Unorthodox are so glad that you and Emily discovered our show while driving through West Texas on a road trip three years ago. And finally, big mazel tov to listeners David Freeholm and Scott Vavercheck on their conversions. Today, David Freeholm and Scott Vavercheck are Jews. So always great to hear. Uh, if we played even the least role in your Jewish literacy, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> right? Then go ask, <laughs> go ask someone who actually knows something. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. If you go to tabletmag.com slash donate, you could give us 18 or $36 and we could do this for another year. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. You can also get our special elite newsletter by putting newsletter in the subject line of an email. And of course, you need to wear and carry unorthodox too. Hit up bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and coffee cozies. Follow us on Instagram at at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sputnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Shira Talushkin. It is edited by Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. And performing at Dr. Ruth's birthday last night. Golem performed at Dr. Ruth's yeah, birthday. Yeah, my dad texts me. He's like, Golem's here. I am so mad I missed that. Like yes. Golem and Dr. Ruth in one room. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Abram Ezra Goodstein, keeping the Jewish hearth warm up there with the frozen chosen of Anchorage, Alaska. Also, rabbinic supervision by Ashley Kramer Giriska, who is the soul of a rabbi. If you think your rabbi should be selected to offer rabbinic supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We recorded Argo Studios, which has almost finished the ruined house, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. 